Any, any prayer requests? Yeah, for my daughter. She turns 21 today. <laughs> I, I hope that's prayer of Thanksgiving then. Uh, yes. That should be a prayer of Thanksgiving. Absolutely. Uh, but also just a prayer of disbelief. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take that as a prayer of Thanksgiving. She's gone out of the house. No, that doesn't happen. I know, I know. I know. We know that really well. Any other prayers? Uh, for me, with college just starting to pray for the students. <clears throat> Going back to school? Going back to school. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, thank you again, Lord, for. What's her name? Victoria. Victoria. Um, for the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself to us, particularly in the Mass this morning. Um, I keep asking this question for all of us, um, all of us, myself included. When we take the Eucharist, where are we? Uh, we just read a poem by Eliot dealing with this in-between state where you have a glimpse of things and still rooted in the world. When we take the Eucharist, where are we? When we walk outside, um, do we really feel that we're a part of your kingdom with the joy that that offers and the burdens? Because if we are, it means struggling to make you real in a world that's not interested in you. So strengthen us in our efforts to live you, to make you real, to carry you to the world, particularly where you're not wanted. Um, I offer, um, or we ask for a blessing on Mark's daughter, Victoria. Um, bless her um, in um, her steps into adulthood, and I suppose some separation, I mean, moving into a world on her own. Um, increase her sense of hope. Um, let it be so for Mark as well. And a thanksgiving on Mark's part and on hers um, that she is at this stage um, ready to, um, to get out on her own more and, um, and struggle with the burdens that um, that step will present to her. Watch over her, guide her, and um, quiet Mark's heart um, going forward with her. Um, and sorry, who else? What about? Um, <laughs> schools are in trouble today, serious trouble. Let a blessing be upon the students going back, particularly that select few who will be more intense in their efforts to follow you. And maybe most especially in those who don't know anything about you. Um, um, let this year be a year of discoveries for them and a renewed sense of the importance of education, the ways it can change the way they see and change their hearts. And I ask for a special grace on our country as it moves towards the end of these impeachment proceedings. Um, the house is a younger body that's closer to the people. The Founding Fathers described it as being more intemperate, more given to the emotions because they're closer to us. Senators are older, that's a requirement of their office. And everything that happens in this stage of the proceedings um, reaffirm the importance of our Constitution and um, what we're about as a polity, as a people. Um, 
There's a lot of divisions in our world here. Um, grant your blessing to us as a people. Help us to recover some sense of the unity that we've been losing in the last century. Um, we've got new problems with ideologues, ideologies that are shaping people's minds. It's an um, absolute turn away from you. Um, we were founded on you. You are in our constitution, our founding documents. Help us to recover some sense of how important you are in our lives and everything we do. Help us to do that, please, particularly now. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay. Um, can you all take out song for Simeon? It's Elliot's, it's the poem, it's the other poem I gave you last mm. week. Yeah, I'm sure we do. Um, if you hold, hold on. Um, can, you have, can you guys share for a second? Mm -hmm. Can I, do you, do you have, oh, you're sharing already? Yeah, because no, no, I, let I it forgot go. my... Um, That's okay. Go ahead. I can listen. No, no, no. Let her go. What did she do with? She's. I think she went to the printer room, Joe. That's all right. Go ahead. No, no. You guys keep it. We're okay. Okay. Listen. Remember when we did Marina, um, um, Elliot was writing a poem from his inspiration in reading that Shakespeare play um, from Pericles. Remember um, Winter's Tale was about this reunion between a father and his daughter, um, Perdita. And Pericles is about a, um, a reunion between a father and his daughter, um, Marina. Um, and in both of them, uh, we were dealing with characters. Doc, do you have any more? No, I'm going In both of those plays, Shakespeare was dealing with this sacramental moment when um, in one play, a husband and wife and a lost child were all reunited. It's, it's a holy moment. It's, to me, it's one of the most extraordinary moments in all the literature. In Pericles, a similar kind of amazing moment takes place when Pericles is reunited with a daughter that he thought he'd lost, and his wife, whom he thought he lost. Um, and Pericles, 
the play Pericles is different from Winter's Tale in one major respect, and that is because Pericles actually hears the music of the spheres. So when he wakes up from his sleep, he, he experiences an actual transcendent moment. You know, it, 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 to me, it reflects Shakespeare's sacramental, something sacramental in his own character. I, I think it's only something possible through the sacraments. You know, if you're a true believer and you receive the Eucharist, you believe you're receiving Christ in you and you're in his kingdom. You know, if he's inside you, that's why I keep asking that play, where are we? You know, when we take him, do we really feel like we're in between worlds? That, and I, I, I don't know, I think I've told this story before when I went to Rome to teach there once and, and got an audience and I was in the back of the, the auditorium. It was a surprise thing, I didn't expect it that day, but I was there on the grounds and somebody just came up to me and said, are you here for an audience? We've got an extra ticket. God, it just shakes me thinking about it. I went in, I was in the very back, and I wrote a letter to the family, because they were all back home, in the back, waiting for Pope John Paul to make his appearance. And it's as if the walls disappeared. I'm not exaggerating, I'm not exaggerating. I was on the verge of tears. It's as if the walls were dis had disappeared and I was back with the disciples. That there are moments when the barriers of time disappear. They just vanish and you're in a timeless moment, you know, and you're those things are real for lots of people. Shakespeare's two plays give us something like that. In the Marina play that we read last week, remember, it, it starts out with those questions, what hills, what, you know, where, where is he? And then returns to that moment with a sense that he's in a boat on a journey, um, and he gives these concrete images that seem to relate to his daughter. Um, clear and more clear. I mean, it's a sense of the familiar with something strange at the same time. I happen to believe that if we could do that more often, we'd be healthy, healthier people. If we could, as parents, if we could look at our children and sometimes catch a glimpse of Christ, knowing that something's going on with them that they don't even see. You know, we get too darkened by our world, I think, too often. But these are these kinds of moments that we've been reading in these plays. Song for Simeon is the same sort of thing. It's Simeon, you remember, is in the New Testament, and I'll just read some of the lines to recall. Um, this is from Luke on the back page. He said, Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Um, the Holy Ghost was upon him. Um, and it says to him that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he comes into the temple when Christ is being presented, and he sees Christ, it's a fulfillment of what the Holy Spirit has just told him. And then it says, um, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, let me depart in peace. Now that I've seen you, my heart's at peace. Mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken. Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising against, again of many in Israel, for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall um, pierce through thy own soul also, and the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. So, when Christ comes in, he'll pierce Mary's soul, but he'll pierce numerous souls. Lots will see the light, lots won't. 
but they will never live the same again. So it is describing as this in-between world, you know, that many Jews had, had to have been left with. Um, um, now, and any other translation, now, Master, you may let your servant go in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared inside of all the peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and glory for your people Israel. Because Christ came out of the Jews. It's one of the great fulfillments of their promise. He was to fulfill. They were, the, they were the means, the people chosen to bring him into the world. That's one of their glories. Um, child's father and mother were amazed. What he said, he blessed them. Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rise of many in Israel to be a sign that will be contradicted. You yourself a sword will pierce so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. All, not all of them good. So Simeon is a man like the father in Marina in this in-between world. Okay. Now, what we said about Marina applies here. Simeon's going to live in a world absolutely familiar to him. But he's also going to be aware of something now that's going to be dreadful. That could be frightening. And if you remember um, Journey of the Magi, the Elliot poem, you know, after Christmas... Remember, he talked about the combination of um, birth and death, and the death was frightening. So when the kings arrive at the, at the manger, they're overtaken with this sense of renewal, of a new life, but it's also a life that will require a special kind of death. That is, anybody who enters into Christ's life knows he's being asked to die, to give his life up. It can be moment to moment during our daily activities. It doesn't have to be our final death. It can be in dealing with things in our family that we, we have to bring Christ when the cost of it will be having to deny ourselves when that will be the hardest thing for us. That's what Christ brought. So Simeon is in that in-between situation. He's Jewish. He's waited his whole life for his Messiah. The moment comes, he can depart in peace, but he knows that it's going to bring to him a, a strange fusion of something familiar and something dreadful. Okay, a song for Simeon. Lord, the Roman hyacinths are blooming in bowls, and the winter sun creeps by the snow hills. The stubborn season is made stand. My life is light, waiting for the death wind, like a feather on the back of my hand. Notice how Eliot, he got this from the French poets, will always try to relate a nothing image, a feather on the back of your hand, absolutely nothing, because of what it evokes in the rest of the meaning of the poem. You always try to root something otherworldly in something going on, the most ordinary kind of thing going on in our world. So we, can't, we cannot disassociate the two, as if what Christ or God is doing is in another world and doesn't touch our own, or if we're just left here physically in the world that we inhabit. The stubborn season is made stand. My life is light, waiting for the death wind like a feather on the back of my hand. Dust in sunlight and memory in corners. Wait for the wind that chills towards the dead land. Grant us thy peace. I have walked many years in this city, kept faith and fast, provided for the poor, have taken and given honor and ease, 
There went never any rejected from my door, who shall remember my house, where shall live my children's children, when the time of sorrow is come. They will take to the goat's path and the fox's home, fleeing from the foreign faces and the foreign swords. You know that Jerusalem's going to be taken over captive. Before the time of cords and scourges and lamentation, grant us thy peace. Before the stations of the mountain of desolation, before the certain hour of maternal sorrow. Remember the babes being crushed on the stones. Before the certain hour of maternal sorrow, now at this birth season of decease, let the infant, the still unspeaking and unspoken word, grant Israel's consolation to one who has 80 years and no tomorrow. He's an old man about to die. According to thy word, they shall praise thee and suffer in every generation with glory and derision, light upon light, mounting the saint's stair. Not for me the martyrdom, the ecstasy of thought and prayer, not for me the ultimate vision. Grant me thy peace, and a sword shall pierce thy heart, thine also. I am tired with my own life and the lives of those after me. I am dying in my own death and the deaths of those after me. Let thy servant depart, having seen thy salvation. So that's Eliot. Remember, early in his career, he's um, been moving towards um, his conversion and is so aware of this in-between state. Okay. Um, murder the cathedral. Just a couple um, matters for you. Remember the poem's divided into two parts, the first and second, and the second is divided into two sections. It's interesting to compare them. Remember I, I asked you to just think about resemblances to the mass. Um, it's, um, most of the play takes place in the bishop or the archbishop's palace, but in the very last section it goes to the cathedral itself where he will be sacrificed. So he gives his homily in the middle of the poem, and from there we go to the last part where an actual sacrifice will take place. It's also interesting to think about parallels between the two sections because the uh, tempters in some ways line up with the knights. In, in Eliot's mind, they doubled them. So I think we're, we're meant to keep the pairs, the correspondences between the two. You know, that the, in a sense, it's as if the temptings foreshadow, they hint at something that might come, and as a matter of fact, it does come true. Some of the major themes that we talked about, it's important to see that for Eliot, the whole English world and for most purposes, the whole Western world in some way is present. The chorus represents the common people. The priests are the priestly class. The tempers are, tempters are anybody representative of various classes and the messenger. Um, I, I keep going back to this theme of reading because it's so crucial for all the works we've been reading. We think that we read well. I keep saying that we don't. Um, Part of the problem is that we think we read well. You know, and if we'd stop thinking that, we'd probably read better. But um, 
remember, most of the works that we've been reading have the quality of, of, of a palimpsest. The palimpsest is a surface that gets rubbed out so that another script can be written over it, so that the works that we've been reading are often multi-layered. Um, and, and I want to just, to, because this is so important, let me go over some quickly. They're, to me, sort of obvious. Um, take a look at, at page 19. I'm going to run through this very, very quickly. On page 19 at the top, the chorus is saying, go back home, go, I mean, go back to France. They, they, they're anticipating trouble. They'd like to be free of it. They know with, with Beckett returning to England that something bad is going to happen. Leave us to perish in quiet. You come with applause, you come with rejoicing, but you come bringing, you come bringing death into Canterbury. A doom on our house, a doom on yourself, a doom on the world. Remember I talked about the curse, the curse on the house of Atreus, Aeschylus' first great trilogy. There's this curse on the house of Atreus that, Atreus that has to be worked out. Something is being worked out. There's a sense in most people that they can't escape it. It's going to happen. So beneath this is Eliot's awareness of that Eastland play. And I've suggested that one of the, one of the ways in which um, we're reminded of it is the formality of the language. It's formal, it's oracular, it's not colloquial. If Eliot did this in a colloquial speech, it would make it silly. This is heavy, grave um, tragedy. It's about a martyrdom. Um, page 59. I'm just randomly going through to pick some things. The three knights say, you are his servant, his tool is Jack. They're trying to convince him to um, comply, to cooperate with the king. You wore his favors on your back. You had your honors all from his hand. From him you had the power, the seal, and the ring. This is the man who was the tradesman's son. Remember the opening of Achilles in the Iliad, very first play. Achilles is his king. Those of you who've done it know Achilles was his king. Agamemnon breaks from him. I'm sorry, Achilles breaks from Agamemnon. And it sets the action of the Achilles in motion. Um, he's, re he's rebelled against his king. And we know that the cost of that is going to be extraordinary. Thousands of men are going to die. We also know that if he didn't do that, the new sense of honor that enters into the Achaean culture, the West, won't have happened. It, it, it won't be present. Remember Achilles says in the ninth book, um, when Agamemnon offers him all those gifts, such honor is a thing I need not. I think I'm honored in Zeus's ordinance. Everything Achilles does refers him to a higher order, and it's one none of the men know. Like most of us, they measure their lives by um, the world, what they gain, what they get, the booty, the possessions, the honor, the glory, and all of that shattered because what the Iliad is about is the coming of this new sense of honor, that there's some intrinsic dignity in man. It doesn't rest on what people can confer on us. Because if honor depends on what people confer on us, I've got so much money, my boss pays me so much, I have all this reputation, it means it also can be taken away. If it can be taken away, who are we? Who are we? So the Achillean the Iliad story is partly behind this. Turn to 60. I'm just trying to suggest that there's a whole tradition behind this thing. 
The knights are accusing him. Thomas says, this is not true. Both before and after I received the ring, I've been a loyal subject. Saving my order, I'm at his command, as his most faithful vassal in the land. First knight, saving your order, let your order save you. Save yourself. What's that an echo of? Yeah. If you're the king, save yourself. Save yourself. They're speaking from the world. They have nothing but scorn for what he's doing. But it's clear that at this point in his life, he's committed himself to a higher order. And that order is not going to... I mean, <laughs> for all that we do to escape death, because none of us wants to face it, I think, he's committed himself to it. He's accepted. That's the value of the martyrdom. It's the blessing that will come from that to other people, that he was willing to risk his life. But they're saying in scorn, save your, save your order, let your order save you. Um, i give you one more, just um, 69. Um, remember that through this whole chorus um, lament, starting on 66, 67, um, this is after the knights chase Thomas off the stage and the chorus comes forward and it, it's a lament of, of their awareness of the presence of death everywhere in nature. Putrid fish in a spoon, they hear it in the animals, see it in the things of nature, the living crab, the, uh, the lobster, the crab, trunk and horn, tusk and hoof, everywhere. I have lain on the floor of the sea and breathed with the breathing of the sea anemone swallowed with ingurgitation of the sponge. Everywhere. The horn of the beetle. I have smelt corruption in the dish. Incense in the labyrinth. And death has been there all. They know this. It's everywhere. Then Thomas says on 69, All my life they have been coming these feet. All my life I've waited. Death will come only when I'm worthy. And if I'm worthy, there's no danger. That's so much like Hamlet's moment. I've suggested this when Hamlet returns, remember, to Denmark. He's, he's going to face his death. He's talking with the, the grave digger, and he looks at the skull of Yorick and remembers the time when Yorick used to carry around when he was a kid. He, Yorick would put him on his shoulder. He's the court jester. And Hamlet has this meditation on death, and it's then that he realizes death. Remember, this is a kid. And York was the court jester, and the court jester used to... So it's a meditation on death. Here's the skeleton, and it's, it's, it makes Hamlet aware of the fact that death has been with him every moment of his life. If you listen to doctors today, I mean, if, and I don't think most doctors are very honest about it, but most doctors are say, you know, you get to a point and your arthritis begins to attack you, and doctors will say, that arthritis was already beginning when you were, you know, meant out of the womb. We're already dying. We've got this health and this vigor. We grow up and we don't give death any thought until we get old. You know, and then it sort of overwhelms us. But death has been here all along. Um, how many people face it? How many people make a place for it in whatever decisions they make? So the text is multi-layered. It's, 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 it's carrying a past with it. Remember, that's one of the signs of good literature. It carries the past, the past forward, changing it as it goes. The whole past is there, but it's reconfigured in the present moment. It's always there. It's what 
It's what helps us see the richness to the present moment. There's so much more going on in the present moment than we see. Um, this becomes explicit in the, in the interlude, because remember in the interlude, in his homily, Thomas says, um, every day, this is so important for this theme of death and day, the day, whether, what it means to live in the day, I'll, I'll come back to that, because to me it's one of the most important things of the work. Thomas says that every day of the year when we go to Mass, we celebrate the death of Christ. Go, every, every Mass goes to the Eucharist. All the readings go to it, the release, the sending out into the public comes from it. We're to take the Eucharist Christ in and bring him to the world. That's the structure of the Mass. So every day is a celebration of God's death for us and his invitation to us to live it, to receive him, carry him to the world, have the courage to live him. Um, when few people want to because most people are concerned about money or security or um, but he said, on Christmas Day, we come to celebrate Christ's birth. So on Christmas Day, the church is asked to, to go to the very extremes of celebration, joy, because we're celebrating Christ's birth, and the depths of extremes in sorrow, because we're celebrating his death. And in that moment, we see the richness of the paradox that is our faith, that it brings joy and sorrow together more completely on that day than any and he goes on to say that um, martyrdom's not an accident he makes that explicit he says it's a it's a design of god that martyrdoms don't happen unless god wants it to wants them to happen um let me just quick take you to that page it's on page 49 in the middle of the page he said a christian martyrdom is never an accident for saints are not made by accident, still less is a Christian martyrdom the effect of a man's will to become a saint. Which was one of, remember, one of Thomas's temptations. He's going to do it for his own ego. As a man by willing and contriving may become a ruler of men. He can't will that. A martyrdom is always the design of God. The question is, at any point in our life, are we doing God's will? If it is, it may, it may involve a martyrdom, not because we seek it, because that's what God's want. That, that's what He wants. It could be. It could be a. It could be a simple matter in our family. It could be a job. Um, are we doing His will, giving our will to what He asks at any moment, whatever we're doing? And um, he, Thomas also goes on to say that Christ gave us His peace, and His peace is not of the world. The peace that he offers is oriented to a, another order, and that's that's the order against which Thomas is setting himself. Um, so those are some of the major um, themes we looked at. I want to just point out one more, and then I want to go forward from where we were last week. On page after his homily, remember the chorus begins um, with a, again a sense that something's wrong and death is approaching. Um, and then after that opening choric introduction, we've got the priest entering one by one. On page 54, the first priest enters with a banner of St. Stephen, and it says, since Christmas a day. And it, it gives words that presumably are 
the words of Christ or Stephen when he was martyred. Then um, the second priest comes in with a banner of St. John and it says, since St. Stephen a day and the day of St. John the Apostle in the midst of the congregation, he opened his mouth. That is, that's Christ in the temple. So the, the unheard word, this is so cru- the unheard word, because remember Christ is the word in heaven, he, he's unheard in that sphere. It's too removed from us. But in taking on our body, he speaks directly to us. So the unheard word is, speaks, and we hear it. The third priest comes in and, and with a banner of the Holy Innocence. And remember, so the day after Christmas, Stephen's killed. Four days later, the Holy Innocence, the children, are killed. I remember from Herod's orders. Third priest comes in and says, Saints John the Apostle a day, the day of the Holy Innocence, out of the mouths of babe. And my question last week, and just a, why all this emphasis on the day? Nothing's said. It just says, since Christmas a day, since St. Stephen a day, since St. John the Apostle a day. And the very next page, the priests are saying, rejoice, we all keeping the holy day. But the first priest responds to that today. Second priest, today, what is today? For the day is half gone. First priest, today, what is today? But another day, the dusk of the year. Second priest, today, what is today? Another night, another dawn. Third, what day is the day that we know that we hope for or fear for? Every day is the day we should fear from or hope from. One moment weighs like another. Only in retrospection, selection, we say, that was the day. The critical moment that is always now and here, even now, in sordid particulars. The eternal design may appear. Now what's all this focus on the day about? What's going on here? Yes. Can you go any farther with that, Joe? If you did that, what would it mean for the way you... How, how, would, it, how would it change that moment from what... Here, let me go back, because Eliot and the Four Quartets, those of you... Or if we get to the Iliad, or we're not going to do it, the Odyssey, but Eliot keeps using these teams, not before, not after. Not before, not after, but here. Because the danger is in living before, we keep holding under regrets or wounds that we've suffered in. All that's happened. And every, almost every work we've read is about people trying to get rid of wounds from the past, like Julius Caesar and Anthony, and not succeeding. Or after, in the hope or desires you have. It's more compelling to want to escape your problems by wishing for what you could have. But in all those things, we keep taking ourselves out of the moment, the here and now. What are the implications of that? What's, who cares? So what? If, if we live in the moment, at least, I, I don't know if, if Lewis, C.S. Lewis said this, but if we live in the moment, we are touching heaven here on earth. Yeah. And even in the Mass, when the priest holds up the consecrated host, that is the moment where heaven and earth are yeah. coming together. Yeah. That moment. Yeah. 
in, in the present moment, if we're living it, there's no way to live that moment and not live all these other moments that are in it, contained in it, that we've just been looking at. Um, um, any, who's, who's I didn't get what you just said. I didn't understand. Can you get the door? I don't know what I said. I can't pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> it's really true. It's really true. What did I just say? Doc, what did I just say? If you live in the, in the moment now, well, you can't help but live all the other all moments other that moments. led up to it. Because in that moment, you're connected with eternity. Wait, here, because here's where I was going. Those of you who have read Boethius, what would Boethius say? Should give a quiz here. Carl, he's going to give me a dirty look out of his eyes. <laughs> what would Boethius say? I don't know what Boethius would have said, but if you live today and you live it in the moment, you'll have a different yesterday and perhaps even a different tomorrow than if you wouldn't do that. Why? Because what you do today determines what happened in the past and guide you to what will happen in the future. Yeah, or, or could be influenced by what happened in the right. past and could change your, yeah. Boethius said, remember, he said, um, he made a distinction between fate and providence. Fate is when we're so caught up with the movements of the world that most of our actions are determined. We, we are, we're, we allow ourselves to be compelled by whatever the... Remember, remember what, I mean, to put this in context, remember when Consolation opens, Boethius is in jail, he's going to be executed. He's whining, Lady Philosophy comes to him and says, stop your whining. And we've gone through that. She says, you've lost your way, you've lost your memory. We've got to go back to where you came from and where you're going. And if we do that, you'll recover your memory and you'll find out who you are. And they go through this long, it's, it's not a long argument, but she makes a distinction between fate, which is things determined by the world, and providence. And the distinction is between the circumference of a circle and its still point. Because you know that every, all, all mathematicians would acknowledge this, ge geometricians. If you look at a wheel and the wheel is turning, the still point is always still. The center is always still. The farther you get away from the center, the faster you go. Closer to the center you get, the, the more you slow down, the more you approach that still point. Dante was the first one who used that image that way in the, in the Perdiso. When Dante was in the back of the heaven, he looked at the center of the universe and he saw God. It was a, it was a circle moving so fast, it was standing still. Boethius picks that up and uses it in that metaphor. So he said that the present moment is his word, this is Shakespeare's reading of it, because Shakespeare read Boethius well. Shakespeare said, the present moment is a parody of eternity. Hold on to that. The present moment is a parody of eternity. In eternity, is there any past or future? Oh. No. It's all a present here. Now, there is no, it's eternal. That's hard to wrap our heads around, but... Eternity is here, and, and you know, 
most people think about heaven as a static abstraction. I mean, nothing could be farther from the, If you're in the presence of God and looking at eternal goodness, what could you feel at every moment but an ecstatic joy that will go on? Shakespeare's line is, the more I looked at it, Dante and Shakespeare both said, the more I looked at it, the more I hungered, the more I wanted more. It's not static. It's a joy that will go on forever. So the present moment here in time is a parody of the present because every present moment links us to that if we live it. The question is, are we caught in the past? I wish this had not had happened. I'm sorry for this. Or if I'd only done. Or I hope this. Or I wish this. Or, you know. And every one of those moments, we're avoiding this timeless moment. What, what, Boeth is called this still point. And Elliot, you know from our reading of Burnt North, or I mean the Fourth Quartets, that how important that image of the still point. It forms the whole of the quartets. So here, when they say Stephen a day, Christmas a day, every one of those days is a holy day. We're approaching a day when a martyr will give his life. And in that moment, he, he will participate in the cross of Christ, the question for the play is, will we enter into that participation in ourselves and what we do? In each day, do we enter Christ's cross, both the, the, the sorrow and the joy that came from him? That was the weight of his homily, yeah? Will we enter into that? Or are we doing everything we can to avoid it? And, and, and in, the words of the, in the words of the chorus, living and not living. Remember we kept repeating those lines when the chorus would say, living and not living. Do you remember? I should have. Um, you know, living and partly living, page 19. The chorus repeats it, living and partly living. Will we be in that world, sort of, of the half-dead, alive, or are we living for Christ? In full joy. This is Paul's letter, by the way. And you know from St. Paul's letter, he's always, forever, connecting joy and sorrow. He never separates them. His joy is living with Christ, whatever the sorrows are. Our church keeps saying, be thankful for everything, be thankful for everything, be thankful. Because even the worst things help us to see who we are. So this, this theme of the day is not a small one. It's it's the one that really is the in some sense the it crystallizes the the work. Saint Thomas is going to go to his death. Um, the the homily talked about um, the mass and the birth of Christ, and each one of the priests is carrying a banner in celebration of a holy day, and the priests are going. I think ironically, what day? Where are we? <laughs> the pre the priests are are going. What day? What day? What day is it today? God, oh, I want to swear. Pardon me. God. Oh! <laughs> Don't be tempting me. <laughs> God, the priests are going, what day? Where is it? Sorry, what day? Uh, wait one second. 56. We rejoice we all keeping the day. Today? Today, what is today? <laughs> These are priests. Today, what is today? But another day, it's just another day. And the third priest is far more intellectual, but he says, even now, in sordid particulars, no matter how bad the world is, the eternal design may appear. If we're living in the day, 
And remember, because we talked about this, um, with that, remember the words that I've gone back to several times now, in page, what was it, 41, page 40? An eternal patience to which all must consent that it may be willed, and which all must suffer that they may will it, that the pattern may subsist, that the wheel may turn, and still be forever still. I said, what's the one thing in this world we cannot escape? It's death. I would add to that sin. Um, what's the one thing that we know about eternity from our life here in our faith? That there is a pattern, that our God came down, offered himself, took our nature back to heaven and called us to him. That's a pattern. It's fixed. Other religions might not acknowledge it. You know, Islam, Judaism, Zoroastrianism. But our belief is that pattern is fixed. There's our God. He carries within him, in heaven, our nature, our human nature, kept it with him when he returned. The sacrifice is in him. The love that answered, the love that answered the divine justice that could never be answered except by God. That's all there. The question is, do we give our wills to that pattern? Will it be the same for every person? Absolutely not. Every one of us, the circumstances of our lives are different. But do we enter into that pattern so that it might be willed, so that that, thus the pattern may subsist. Sorry, these glasses, God. <laughs> that the pattern may subsist, that the wheel may turn and still be forever still. So those are, those are, you know, the major themes that take us to the second part. What I'd like to do now is look at the knights and what happens with the knights in the chorus and um, how the play concludes. But any questions about what we... Julie, did that... Sorry, to, did that answer that question? Because yeah. I... Did it? Yeah, thank okay. you. Okay. I have a quick question. Yeah. Everything is about death, but I've noticed that... <coughs> In literature, they don't really talk about eternal life as much. They talk more about the death, but not the renewal. Is there a reason for that? Wow. I mean, just a quick thing. It's like, am I missing something? No. You know, it's just really, that's a really good question. Uh, just here, I mean, off the top of my head, for what it's worth, because I think it's true. The only work in which I know that that's not so is Dante's Paradiso. Right, well, he's done that, right. Wait, but hold on, because this goes to you. Um, and, or, or put it differently, put it differently. Imagine a writer trying to write a novel about only good, nothing bad. Would you have a novel? No, you need conflict, I understand. Good. Take the conflict, I'm really, I mean, this is sort of simple-minded, but Take the conflict away, what do you have to write about? Don't, I mean, this is sort of extraordinary. Yeah, you don't, because in our human condition, every day of our lives, we're bearing, we're bearing conflicts all the time. We won't be free of them until we're, you know, we leave this world. So there's, it's natural to focus on that. The only person who's really gone beyond it is Dante and the Paradiso. And lots of people won't read that book. They don't like it. it, it to them, it's boring. I, I think it's extraordinary. But for that reason, because we're so enmeshed in conflict, and more of it, it's hard to see into the next world. Mm -hmm. who, who, who? Paul talks about the division in the, you know, the third order, third heaven. 
He doesn't, doesn't give us, he says, I have not seen, ear hath not heard. How do, you be, how do you begin to describe that? Plato in the Phaedro, Phaedrus said um, that no poet, this, this is so important, Plato said, no poet has ever gone to the back of the universe and described outside of the cave what's there. One, I'd say two. Dante's one, I'd say Shakespeare's the other, because I'd say in Winter's Tale, Shakespeare shows us a paradiso moment. And in Pericles, I'd say this, when Pericles hears the, those are the only works that I know of that actually render something close to a beatific, a, this sacramental experience of a kind of a peace. And you, what, the only thing that makes it effective is by the time you get to that, you're carrying all the pain because it makes it worthwhile. The poet, the poet who skips it, leaves us with a cheap sense, like it's not deserved. And nobody believes that poet because it, you'll say fantasy, you know. It's always earned that it's the fruit of some suffering, some sorrow, death. Any other questions? I got one that I, I couldn't figure out, and maybe I don't mean to throw you off, but. <clears throat> Third priest on page 55. Yeah. At the very end, um, he says, The blood of the saints have, have they shed like, the blood of the saints they have shed like water. There's no man to bury them. Avenge, O Lord, the blood of thy saints. Then in Rama, a voice heard weeping. I looked up Rama, and Rama is the seventh avatar of Vishnu. Or, yeah. Or is there another explanation for that? I don't, Joe, because I had the same question. Exactly, and I looked it up and I couldn't. And I wasn't satisfied with that because I'm not sure that that's what it refers to. I'm not sure that it is in a place. I don't know it, Elliot. It's, it's kind of out of, out of place. I don't, if I don't that's know. That's what it means. I yeah, don't I don't know. Okay. Um, I can't answer it. I had the same question, though. Rama is like a Hindu god. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the yeah. one one thing I do know that I can, which which lends credence to what you're saying is, Eliot, in the early part of his life, and even through his life, even after his conversion, um, was really taken with Hinduism oh, okay. and its whole theology, um, the, the, um, that quiestic, that, that spirit of peace. Um, he, he, um, um, Krishna shows up in a number of his poems in, in, the, in, the, in the wasteland. And it, actually, interestingly, in the wasteland, which is about the sterility of the modern city. It ends with the Indian gods and thundering. If we do go on with this course, and we end it, it'll be ending on Eliot's The Wasteland, and the four quartets will do The Wasteland. So there, there may be something there, but honestly, I can't. I'm, I'm not enough aware of it to be able to give you any kind of a good answer. Well, that got me a little bit further. Yeah. What? Go ahead. Did you? I'm sorry. No, that was oh, okay. good. Thank you. Okay, let's. Um, I want to look at the knights just very briefly. Um, the knights arrive and accuse um, Beckett of uh, being a traitor on 59. You are the archbishop in revolt against the king, in rebellion to the king and the law of the land. You are the archbishop who was made by the king, whom he set in your place to carry out his command. You are his servant, his tool, his jack. You are his favors on your back. 
you had your honors all from his hand, and him you had the power, the seal, and the ring. And it's everything you are, you owe to him. Now, we've, we've gone over this church-state thing forever. We've gone over it with Dante. We did it in the Protestant Catholic section, um, where the state begins to assert itself and make it greater claims than the church. And I gave you those documents that um, we looked at when we first began Dante. Remember, if you go back to the beginning of things, the understanding was um, church and state, that Christ said, give unto God what's God, give unto Caesar's what's Caesar's. The church has a higher claim because it's concerned with the ultimate destiny of man's soul. It's a far graver matter than what goes on with our body here. So the church was always higher. Whenever the state made itself greater, it put holy things at risk. And that's been a struggle throughout history. Um, and we've, we've looked at specific periods when it, it actually defined everything that was going on. Here, the knights are making that claim that, the, that virtually, this, and by the way, if those of you who started um, Dostoevsky, you know in the opening chapters when they meet in, uh, in Father Zosima's cell, they're going to be talking about the relationship between church and state in a, in a pointed way, exactly in these terms. When the church tries, to, when the church um, assimilates the state into itself, or the state assimilates the church and makes it subordinate. Um, it's, going to be, it's going to be fundamental to the opening of Dostoevsky. So it's been with us. It was there with Dante. It was there with Milton. It's here now. This is the man who is the trademan's son, the black, the, the backstairs brat. Um, the man who cheated, swindled, lied, broke his oath, and betrayed the king. Thomas said, this is not true. Um, and the, the knights say that he's been loyal. Thomas says on 61, loyal to whom? They say that they're loyal to the king, all of them. All of them say, God bless the king. What's the irony of that? Well, they believe the king was determined from God in their minds. Yeah. I hope everybody hears the irony. I mean, you're, you're, it's irony because you're asking God bless a guy, but you're also doing it without seeming to be aware that the king's usurping his power, that there's a higher, po a higher power than his own. Um, they start to attack him and pull back, and then they, they make their accusations, their case on page 62. Um, you fled from England, not exiled or threatened, mind you, but in the hope of stirring up trouble in the French dominion. So you went there with the express purpose of causing problems between Henry, the French king, and the pope. Um, you reviled the king to the king of France. So you criticize him implicitly, you're traitorous, because you put kings against each other. To the pope, raising up against him false opinions. Yet the king, out of his charity, and urged by your friends, offered clemency, made a pact of peace. So the king made... King made these efforts to reconcile, um, and bearing the memory of your transgressions, restored your honors, your possessions, all was granted for which you sued. Yet how, I repeat, did you show his gratitude? Verse 9, suspending those who crowned your own. What happened with the young prince is this, that ordinarily the, the, the bishops of Canterbury were the ones to crown the prince. But in this case, um, a number of other bishops from other 
I don't know what you call these senders in England, but York and some others, others were the ones who did it. So they violated a long tradition and, and with some sense against the Pope um, because the, the Pope, the, the bishops who did do it were really doing it under Henry. So once again, Henry was trying to um, strengthen his power over the clergy and the bishops in England. Third night, using every means in your power to evince the king's faithful servants, everyone who transacts his business in his absence, the business of the nation. Um, what's the issue here? Um, if, if, if Beckett had come back in the spirit in which these knights say he should have, and Henry would have done, made a pact of peace, all disputes ended, sent you back to your sea as you demanded, buried the memory of your transgression. That is, the king would have, out of charity, offered clemency. Would he have done that? From what we know historically. Probably not. Not probably. Why, can, can anybody, we've gone over some things, why not? Well, you're dealing with France and England, that was a big problem back then. Back and forth and back and forth. So going going to the king of France was like that that's traitor. Yeah. Being a traitor on its own. Remember, here's the else. here's the here's the crux of the problem, the crux. Thomas was the chancellor for years, and he was very efficient what he did. He helped restore order with with the nobles, with the lords, with the king. When he became archbishop, Henry's intent was to combine the two offices because he knew if he could he could get greater control over the bishops. Yeah. And you think, so when, when Beckett was made archbishop, he resigned the post of chancellor. That's when the quarrels <coughs> began between him, I mean, got really severe between him and Henry. If Beckett had come back from France as archbishop and did not pick up that chancellorship, do you think Henry would have been okay with it? No, he would not have. He would not have. The reason this execution is taking place is because he knew that. Beckett was not going to be under his thumb. He was going to serve the church when that would cause problems for Henry. That's why when Beckett left France, when the Pope asked him to go back and the Pope was going to send men to try to um, arbitrate, you know, try to resolve this problem, Beckett had intimations, had some suspicions that he might come back and be killed because the tensions were that great, okay? So the, the knights make these charges. Um, they present their case. 63, these are the facts. Say, therefore, if you will be content to answer in the king's presence, therefore we are sent. Never was it my wish to uncrown the king's son or diminish his honor and power. Why should he wish to deprive my people of me? As for bishops, it's not my yoke. He excommunicated a number of bishops because they stood with Henry against the church. Um, the knights say absolve them. Thomas says he can't. It's up to the Pope. It's bottom of 64. First knight, be that as it may, here is the king's command. This is a clement, this is a spirit of clemency. That you and your servants depart from this land. If Thomas says, if that's the king's command, he says, I won't do it. I shall not get those seven years back again, never again, you must make no doubt. Shall the sea run between the shepherd and his fold? He has to stay there. One of the things that Elliot did in the opening was make clear from the chorus how des and the priest how desperate it was to have their leader back because without their leader, the church was lost. 
So the, the tensions are deep, and they're not just fictitious. It's once again, the tensions are an expression of this conflict between two orders of power and the importance of a ruler for both. But, but, but with respect to their separate orders, the king with his, Beckett with his. Um, Beckett goes out, he's, um, when, they, when they call him a traitor on 68, I submit my cause to the judgment of Rome, but if you kill me, I shall rise from my tomb to submit my cause before God's throne. Um, the four knights go out. Um, now, the, the chorus comes in, and it's one of these laments, except re remember early on when the, when the chorus spoke, they talked about the, the lords of hell. Page was that. On page 44, they're, they're speaking about their awareness of death permeating the culture. For laughter, 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 the lords of hell are here. They curl round you like your feet swing and wing through the dark air. O Thomas, Archbishop, save us, save us, save yourself that we may be. It's absolutely crucial to have some feeling here that what the court sense, the chorus is sensing is real. It's almost as if evil's become palpable. That this thing is so real. Um, when the knights go after Thomas here, the court, the chorus says, 66, I have smelt them, the death bringers, senses are quickened by subtle forebodings. I have heard fluting. In the nighttime, fluting and owls have seen at noon scaly wings slanting over. At the top of 67, the savour of putrid fresh flesh in the spoon. I have felt the heaving of earth at nightfall, restless, absurd. I've heard the laughter of jackals. It goes on and on. The living lobster, the crab, the oyster, the whelk, and the prawn, and they live and spawn in my bowels, and my bowels dissolve in the light of dawn. I've smelt death in the rose, all these various flowers. I've lain on the floor of the sea and breathed the breathing of the sea anemone, swallowed with ingurgitation of the sponge. In the air, flirted with passage of the kite, I have plunged with the kite and cowered with the wren. I have felt the horn of beetle, the scale of the viper, the mobile, hard, insensitive skin of the elephant, the evasive flank of the fish. I have smelt corruption in the dish, incense in the latrine, the sewer in the incense, the smell of sweet soap in the woodpath, the hellish sweet scent in the woodpath on the ground. It's as if evil is embodied, and it's so palpable, they feel it everywhere. I have seen rings of light coiling downward, descending to the whore of the ape. Have I not known what was coming to be? It goes on. I have smelt them, the death bringers, now it's too late for action. Too soon for contrition. The act has not taken place. Nothing, nothing is possible but the shame swoon of those consenting to the last humiliation. This is a little bit like all the people who stood around Christ, God, when he was being executed. And nobody did anything about it. No armies came to his rescue. No angels. It had to be done. And remember... At least as Eliot's. This is what's extraordinary about this play, and it's, to me, it's what makes it so hard to teach. In every other play that we've talked about, you, you have a sense of renunciations of death. This is the first work that we've read that actually goes inside of the man who's going to be a martyr. 
And, and we're supposed to understand that God is at work here. Nobody's going to save him. Nobody can rescue him. Um, so they're giving their con- implicitly giving their consent to what's happening. Of those consenting to the last humiliation, I have consented, Lord Archbishop, have consented, am torn away, subdued, violated, united to the spiritual flesh of nature, mastered by the animal powers of spirit, dominated by the lust of self-demolition, by the final utter uttermost death of spirit, the final ecstasy of waste. It's like we're so trapped in our mortal bodies, we don't have the courage. I mean, how many of us would willingly enter into a death? It's as if everything in us in our bodies wants to hold on to our life. O O Lord Archbishop, O Thomas Archbishop, forgive us. Forgive us, pray for us, that we may pray for you out of our shame. Thomas says, it's so powerful, peace and be at peace with your thoughts and vision. These things have had to come to you and um, you to accept them. This is your share of the eternal burden of perpetual glory. All of this is being done for them in some respects. Be at peace with it. Not everybody's called to do this. But something will come to them through this, just as it did with Christ. That's why I think the day, Christmas the day, Stephen the day, Entering into this day means entering into the crucifixion with Christ. That's what Beckett is doing, knowing, consoling his people because a peace will come to them. You shall forget these things toiling in the household. You shall remember them droning by the fire when age and forgetfulness sweeten memory, only a dream that has often been told and often been changed in the telling. They will seem unreal. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. It, if I can put it this way, because I, I just, you know how much I hate black-white readings everywhere, because um, they're dishonest. Imagine a whole range of hundreds of thousands, ten people. Every, every person of that ten is going to struggle with, with a cross in some degree, from picking up a child that's been crippled, I mean, I don't know, you know, to a cross where somebody's going to die. But there's a whole grade of degrees of entering and participating in the cross. In our marriages, in parenting, in our jobs. Um, who knows them? God does. God does. Um, even if others don't. But here, Beckett's been chosen for martyrdom, and he's saying to the Chorus, be at peace. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. Um, Thomas acknowledges that uh, this moment has been coming for him, and I, I read these lines last time, I, they're so powerful. Um, he says on page 69, all my life they've been coming these feet, all my life I've waited, death will come only when I'm worthy, and if I'm worthy there's no danger. I have therefore only to make perfect my will. The question for all of us is, are we doing what we can to make ourselves better? To make the efforts daily to become better people? You will be killed, come to the altar. They're saying, come, get away. <laughs> it's, so, it's like Peter saying to Christ. Remember when he said, Don't, and, and what were his words to Christ? And Christ turns around and says, get away from me, Satan. Christ has to do this. It's will. Be quiet, quiet. Remember where you are and what's happening. No life here is sought for but mine. I'm not in danger, only near to death. What an extraordinary line. Most people say if you're close to death, you're in danger. There's no danger for him. The question was perfecting his will, and we've seen the temptations that he's gone through. So 
At this point, he's ready. Thomas says, Go to Vespers, remember me at your prayers. They shall find the shepherd here, the flock shall be spared. I've had a tremor of bliss, a wink of heaven. There's that in-between state we've been talking about. I've had a tremor of bliss, a wink of heaven, a whisper, and I would no longer be denied. All things proceed to a joyful consummation. Now, um, they drag him off, and the chorus um, speaks these words with the um, Dies Ere sung. It, it's the Day of Wrath, you know, at the top of 71, while the Deus Ere is sung in Latin by a choir. Numb the hand, still the horror, but more horror. Then when, it's, it's greater than tearing the belly. Still the horror, but more horror. It's greater than, you know, twisting your fingers through your skull. More than footfall in the passage, more than shadow in the door. You know how sometimes you get terrified when, you, when we're younger in a footfall and you hear something or a shadow and you get frightened? More than footfall in the passage, more than shadow in the doorway, more than fury in the hall. The agents of hell disappear, the human they shrink and dissolve into dust. The flat white face of death, God's silent servant, and behind the face of death, the judgment, Behind the judgment, the void, more horrid than active shapes of hell. So they're imagining now the horror that's greater than anything they've experienced. More than the tear, the tearing in the belly, the twisting of our hair, and our, you know. They're facing nothing. Um, behind the judgment, the void, more horrid than the active shapes of hell. Emptiness, absence, separation from God. The horror of the effortless journey to the empty land, which is no land, only emptiness, absence, the void. That is, it, it's, he goes far beyond Dante. I mean, those of you who remember, <coughs> because of Dante, we can recognize all the figures in hell. He's saying, if God is all being, and you separate yourself from God, you separate yourself from being. You're nothing. That's so much grimmer than anything we saw in Dante. Much, much grimmer. And, and um, Eliot loved Dante. He was his major poet. Where those who are men can no longer turn the mind to distraction, delusion, escape into dream, pretense, where the soul is no longer deceived, for there are no objects, no tones, no colors, no forms to distract, to divert the soul from seeing itself, foully united forever, nothing with nothing. Not what we call death, but what beyond death is not death. It's the void. We fear, we fear who shall then plead for us, who intercede for me in my most need. They invoke Christ, and they're asking for Thomas's prayers. Um, um, Thomas comes back, and you know that the, the uh, um, he says on page 74, unlock the door. Um, this is something he can't stop. We have only to conquer now by suffering. This is the easier victory. Now is the triumph of the cross. Now open the door, I command it. The knights come in and they kill him. I want to I want to stop for a minute because um, I want to go through the, the knights' um, defense in a second. But before I do, any questions up to this point about what's taking, what's taken place or the meaning of it, what Elliot's showing us? You just read a whole lot of deep, 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 
deep stuff, and you're asking, do you have any questions? You, you've, not, you've not been here. You've not been here for six months, and you respond like that because all of the things, all of the things that are implied there. Mark, I know. I mean, it's just. I mean, it's because it's such a profound. Pl I couldn't agree with you more. It's just. I mean, it's like if you meet God, and he goes, "You got any questions?" <laughs> you're like, oh, yeah. Except, except, Mark, if you're reading this, we're left with the play. I mean, we've got. It's like meeting God, but we're not. We're dealing with the play. So, any questions about the play? <laughs> I agree with you. I mean, I, this to me is. You know, we've been talking about this for the last several weeks, that this is a play about martyrdom. It's just we've not, we, we it's really, um, Fred said something last um, Friday morning. He said, he said, this is so profound. He said, this is Fred, he said, in one sense, he said, this is one of the greatest works we've read. He said, it's what every one of the other works that we've been reading was about. In some ways it was so true. I mean, all the works, all the works have had to do with where's Christ and, and this one, Goes to the heart of martyrdom, so you know it. It's it's really profound, but we're still we're still dealing with the play. And, and you're right, Mark. I mean, it's it's like meeting God. But just in terms of the play, any any questions about what Elliot's doing with Beckett and or comments or. Where did he get his inspiration to write this? I mean, wow. it could be from but I mean, yeah. there, there had to be something in his mind that said, you know, I need to go write about that. Do you, do, was there anything written about what Jeez, set I, him off on this path? Jeez, I don't. I mean, it's a really good question, Mark. All, I mean, I, I can't begin. And I'm, this isn't I, like, I mean, this isn't like, I think I'll write about Butterfly right, today or something. Right, you know, no. This is, no, but what I know, I, it, and I'm just not going to do justice to your question, what I know is that when Elliot writes Proofrock, 1918, um, uh, Wasteland, 1920, I've, we've looked at those, we've spoken about the Wasteland, and I've talked about them as being um, watershed poems that they define modernity, the new voice, you, you can't find anything like this in the 19th century romantics, and Browning gets close, but, so there's a new voice, he's, he's looking at spiritual depths, Proof Rock I, it is a poem about hell, those of you who did it, you know that Prufrock was asking us on a journey, and the epigraph is from um, Guido in hell. Guido was saying to Dante, he, he will tell him something because he trusts nobody will come out to tell about it. And Dante hears it, and he comes out to tell us about it. So Prufrock was telling, is, is taking us on a journey, and he's assuming nobody will get out to tell him. It's an infernal journey. It's called the love song of Jeff Prufrock, remember? Wasteland is about the modern the sterility of the modern world. So Eliot's looking, try to imagine this. Beginning of the century, we just had a world war, unlike any other world war, we're entering into a second world war that is going to be, it's going to kill millions, and the Jews will be singled out. So it, it was a world war unlike any, everybody in the world realized we'd reached a point where we could destroy ourselves on the planet. We had reached this point. It was a post-Christian world. The world had largely turned away from Christ. Our, our traditions are behind us. So Eliot's writing out of that. But he has a conversion about 1930 in there. He's going through a conversion. So something's happening. He writes these aerial poems, Marina and Simeon. 
and shortly after them he's going to write Ash Wednesday, which is a poem on, on a conversion. And during that time he writes this. So it, it seems to me he's, this is me speculating, I, I haven't read a biography on Eliot. It seems to me this is Eliot, who's one of the great poets, I'd say he's the greatest poet, lyric poet of the 20th century, lyric. Um, about his meditations on the sterility of our world, um, the lack of faith, um, the complicity of the modern world, its complacency, the way it goes along with things, and at the center of them is this loss of faith. And, and he writes this poem about a martyrdom. And um, I can't say more than that, but it seems to me it's the product of a man who has really deep spiritually wrestled with demons. You know, he's had to look at things in his own life. His first wife was committed to an institution. They got married. It was, you know, I mean, a lot was going on in his personal life. He's undergoing a conversion. He was American and became a British subject, and this is, I'm sure he was fascinated by old British traditions. But I think this is universal, I and mean, he's dealing with martyrdom. Um, here, let me just quickly, because we've got to, we've got to, we've got to finish up. I want to just look very briefly at the, at the knights. The names of these knights are the actual names of those historical figures who murdered Beckett. So. Eliot's being historically accurate with Beckett and the killers, the Pope, all of it. The first knight comes out, page 78, and he says, I'm not a man of talk. He says, I'll appeal to your sense of honor. He said, I know as Englishmen you have the sense of fair play. Boy, that, I've got to be careful here. He says, he's appealing to Englishmen because he says, as Englishmen, you have a sense of fair play. So you've got to be troubled. Nevertheless, I appeal to your sense of honor. You're Englishman. I myself am not qualified to put this. I'm a man of action, not of words. So he introduces the next speaker. The third knight says, just two things, a couple of things that I want to point out. 79 at the top. Whatever you may think of it, we've been perfectly disinterested. They didn't do this to get anything out of it. In their own minds, as they're putting it forward, they were simply acting in response to the king. And if you, if you know the historical accounts they are, um, Henry said, will somebody not rid me of this nuisance? And his loyal supporters did it. I mean, that's questionable. It, you know, that may be the popular reading. For me, it's hard to believe that Henry didn't say, get rid of it. But we don't know, okay? He said, we're disinterested. We are four plain Englishmen who put our country first. And he then goes on to admit that he had a lot to drink, and then asks us to sympathize with him because he said, it's hard to do something like this if you're, so we just had some, you know, some drinks. Um, for my part, I'm awfully sorry about it. We realized this was our duty, but all the same, we, we had to work ourselves up to it. So, and he said, we're not getting out of it. God bless Henry. We have to say for reasons of state that he never meant this to happen. Um, and then at the bottom he says, personally, I had a tremendous admiration for him, Beckett. You must have noticed what a good show he put up at the end. This, this English love of appearances. Put up a good fight, a good show. The first night reinforces what's just been said on 80, and then he turns um, to the second night who says, um, Now the worthy archbishop whose good qualities I very much admire has thoroughly been presented as the underdog, but is this really the case? And he talks about 
Henry's accomplishments as chancellor and then says, 81 towards the top, he therefore intended that Becket, who had proved himself an extremely able administrator, no one denies that, should unite the offices of chancellor and archbishop. Had Becket concurred with the king's wishes, said none of this would have happened. So they're taking the king's position that what Henry wanted out of this was only to reconcile those as if it was in it, just bring the chancellorship together with his religious office. When Becket of the king's instance had been made archbishop, he resigned the office. He became more priestly than the priest, and all he did was make things impossible afterwards. Um, go on over, 82. If you now arrived at a just subordination of the pretensions of the church to the welfare of the state, remember that it's we who took the first step, because their assumption is the state is higher than the church. First knight turns to the fourth one, and he says on page 83, while the late archbishop was chancellor, no one under the king did more to wield the country together to give it its unity, stability, order, tranquility. From the moment he became archbishop, he completely reversed the polity. He showed himself to be utterly indifferent to the fate of his country, to be, in fact, a monster of egotism. Um, on page 81, just go back for a second. Middle of the page. We have been instrumental in bringing about the state of affairs that you approve. We have served your interests. We merit your applause, and if there's any guilt, whatever in the matter, you must share it with us. Um, on page 84, the first night again, who was the leader of the four, even though he was um, had very little to say, he says, um, there's no more to be said, um, that you, um, he asked everybody to disperse quietly to your homes, Please be careful not to loiter in groups, street corners, do nothing that might provoke any public outbreak. Because the assumption is people will be so upset that they'll go out and riot. Stop for a second. What, what, what's your response to the knights? Following orders. Getting excuse. Good men? Because they're following orders? I didn't say they were good men. <laughs> I mean, if you were a judge, Carl, just, I mean, I'm not sure what you're saying. Would you quit them? On the basis of what they've said, for killing a guy, for killing Becca. No, but they were using, they were rationalizing. That's what they say the king told them to do. So that's what they were doing. They were kingsmen. It was duty, right? They were doing their duty to their king, and that was highest above all. Okay, let me put this differently then, because I'm. Are there any ironies to this? Any ironies? that the state has killed the religious leader, right? So you have Rome or the Jews, whatever, killing Christ, right? You have the state killing, and then you have the state, the king, killing the religious leader. Yeah, it's really, I mean, I'm glad you put it that way because it's a little bit like um, Pilate with God. It's just, but he absolved himself. Yeah, but Pilate washed his hands. Yeah. He's still guilty, but he washed his hands. Yeah, but, but, but I mean, it was still, you know, to me, it's, it's you see, the knights are orders of the state and orders of the king. Right. Killing the, the Christ-like, the, the, the head of the church. Right. For power to keep every to keep everything under control. State, state. Order, right. And it was a, it was it was a power grab, too. Oh, sure. By what authority? He, he assumed an authority that did not previously exist. Who? The king. king yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, no, no, the pretext is that he came from 
was ordained by God. Yes, right? so. yes. And I think after this, you don't have the chancellor nor the archbishop ever again in the same but you were office. Always, correct. But you were always, but it was always by the grace of God you were king. No, you, no. And I'm, you were I'm, crowned I'm, by the church as far as... Right. But what I'm saying is those, those two offices, I think, are, are never entwined. They are separate. Well, actually, history. well... I, in, mo in most cases. <laughs> I would say that the, the, the archbishop, the, the danger in England has been for centuries now that the bishopry and the archbishop and those offices are largely under the direction or control of the king. Karen, what do you have to say about the, the knights? Uh, I thought it was interesting that they put it back on the people. This is really your fault. Right, <laughs> right. Read the lines. That, uh, let me see if I can find it. Is everybody aware of what she's saying? Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. 82. Go ahead if you I'm not sure this is what you were talking about. Mm -hmm. It's where he says, we've been instrumental in bringing about the state of affairs that you approve. We have served your interests. We merit your applause. And if there is any guilt, whatever, in the matter, you must share it with us. Hmm. Is that what you were thinking of? Yep. Yep. Here, just for a moment, for those of you who've read Hamlet, we did Hamlet. If you remember in the opening address that um, the king makes, in the very opening address, remember, he's just, he's just killed his brother. He's the king now. Everybody, nobody knows how the king died. Hamlet will learn from his father's ghost. But the king makes his first address, State of the Union, and he says, on this business, I have followed all your best advice. What's he doing? He's implicating the people. It's their responsibility. Because if he does that, at that point, nobody can come back to him. Shakespeare knows exactly what he's doing. I mean, one of the influences, I meant to go here, Mark, one of the, I mean, to me, one of the great influences that made this possible, I tried to suggest that earlier, was Shakespeare's influence. Eliot's reading of Shakespeare, particularly those last plays. He would have read them all. He would have known them really well. But Pericles, and particularly Pericles, and plays like Hamlet. What the king is doing is implicating everybody. It makes it easier for him to point his finger at somebody else when it becomes an issue. It never will because he's the king. Hamlet's got to uncover this all on his own. But So at the end, it seems to me one of the, one of the things that Eliot's doing, I think this is really subtle. He's not moralizing. Here, this is so important. Eliot doesn't point his finger. He doesn't moralize at anybody. Writers can do that. He doesn't do that. What he presents is characters who have implicated us. And the question for any serious reader is, where am I in this question? Remember, the chorus has been saying, in fact, they're going to end. The chorus is going to say, let me read the final line or some of the lines just to see where we are. If you go to the very end of the book. Um, the Te Deum is being sung, and the chorus was, we praise thee, we praise thee. Those who deny thee could not deny if thou did not. It's an affirmation of God's existence and the goodness that he's doing. This is on page 86. They affirm thee in living all things affirm thee. Therefore man whom thou hast made to be conscious of thee must consciously praise. We the scrubbers, down at the bottom of 86, we the scrubbers and sweepers of Canterbury, the backs bent under toil, the knee bent under sin, the hands to the face under fear, the head bent under even in us, the voices of season, the snuffle of winter, the song of spring, the drone of summer, the voices of beasts of birds, praise thee. We thank thee for thy mercy. 
Um, go down, for whenever a saint has dwelt, wherever a martyr has given his blood for the blood of Christ, there is holy down, dead ground. You could put, there is the day. You're following me, yeah? Going back to those lines, there is the day. There is holy ground, and the sanctity shall not depart, depart from it. From such ground springs that which forever renews the earth, though it is forever de denied. Mike, I've got writing over, sir. Therefore, O God, we thank Thee who has given such blessing. Um, this is one of the most, I think, one of the most powerful lines. At the very bottom, forgive us, O Lord, we acknowledge ourselves of types of the common man. Remember, Eliot's dealing with a whole of culture, all of us, who fear the blessings of God, the loneliness of the night of God, the surrender required, the deprivation inflicted, who fear the injustice of men less than the justice of God. Somebody paraphrase that. Put that in your own words. They fear God's justice more than they fear the injustices of man. Why? Because they're worried about not being good enough. Remember, they've stood by. I mean, in their own minds, they're, I mean, they feel complicit in guilt. And Thomas has said, be at peace. Because he knows he's done this for, for other reasons. He believes that God's grace works through whatever sacrifices men make. Who fear the injustice of men less than the justice of God. Who fear the hand at the window, the fire in the thatch, the, um, the fist in the tavern. push into, They fear those less than we fear the love of God. The most frightening thing for them is God's justice and his love. Because it asks something of them. We acknowledge our trespass, our weakness, our fault. We acknowledge that the sin of the world is upon our heads, that the blood of the martyrs and the agony of the saints is upon our heads. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Blessed Thomas, pray for us. Here, to go back to my... Elliot never points his finger at anybody. He lets the characters speak for themselves. Yeah? Nobody's pointing. But the question that he's left us with, it seems to me, particularly because of what the knights do, is where are we? Are we implicated? Where are we? I mean, will we enter the day? St. Stephen the day, Christmas the day, the Holy Innocents the day, that line I just wrote about the ground, the holy ground of martyrs, you know? Mm -hmm. there, is, there is the ground. God, that's so good. It's like there is the day. There is holy ground, and the sanctity shall not depart from it. Day by day do we enter into the lives of the saints, the martyrs, to the life of Christ. Do we share in that? This is Stephen the day, this day. Um, where is England? And there's that God, extraordinary line. It goes to the... Um, um, Turn to 76. This is while the killing, the murder is going on. The chorus says, clear the air, clean the sky. That these are the, the, the lords of hell. Evils, genuine evils upon them. Through these, and the instruments of the evil are these four men. Yeah? 
The land is foul, the water is foul, our beasts and ourselves defiled with blood. A rain of blood has blinded my eyes. Remember my question when we take the Eucharist, where are we? Where are we? They're going, where is England? Where is Kent? Where is the Pope? Huh? Where is Canterbury? Oh, far, far, far in the past, I wonder. So, so Eliot's taken back us in his, through the poetry and allowed us to participate in imagination with an actual martyrdom. And we've experienced from various positions, perspective, the priest, the chorus, the tempters, the knights. And at the end, I mean, we've gone through the martyrdom, we've, we've been with Thomas as, as he, or, you know, St. Thomas, as he's faced his temptations, and he has to actually deal with them and then accepts the martyrdom and participates in the cross. But the knights present a case at the end. Ellie wouldn't do that unless he was, you know, they're presenting it to us. They're asking for a decision on our part. Where are we? We exonerate them. Are we implicated? And all I can do is, is point to those statements earlier. Stephen the day, the holy ground, the blood. Where are we with respect to the saints of our church? Do we live them? Do we try to participate them? What are we doing to prepare for our own deaths? On that sober note, can we stop here? Or? Julie, how are you with all this? You're, you're a newcomer. I'm just listening. Let's stop. Dostoevsky next week. We're going to Russia. I'm going to get some light reading. Yo, guys. Yeah, I'm trying to yeah, yeah. something else. Oh, just um, I'd I'd like to I'd like to try to do I'd like to try to do this in maybe six eight weeks. So I don't I'm not going to rush. I would say try to get through the first book, which is the like the first six or seven or eight chapters. I don't remember, but I'm not going to press this right now. I'd, I'd but I really would ask everybody to move along on it because it's. Obviously, you've seen it. It's a thick book, so. Suggested 37, 38 chapters. There are just, there are 12 chapters, Carl.